Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about world affairs and the people who shape it. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch, and in this show we discuss topical global issues and have in-depth conversations with personalities in foreign policy. Global Dispatches is presented in partnership with Humanity in Action, an international educational program, and I am a Humanity in Action senior fellow. My guest today, Sharon Weinberger, is author of the new book, The Imagineers of War, The Untold Story of DARPA. Now, DARPA for the Uninitiated stands for the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, and it is the branch of the Pentagon that is famous for developing some far-out-there technologies, some of which were total flops, but others that have become central to not only modern warfare, but also daily life. We have a fascinating conversation about the history of technology in warfare and the implications of having a military institution conducting research that can have big society-wide consequences. Stay tuned. This is a great conversation. Sharon has been a journalist on my radar for many years since she founded this great national security-focused section of Wired magazine called Danger Room. That was many years ago, and she's had many iterations of her career since then. She is now executive editor at Foreign Policy magazine. And we discuss Sharon's pathway into journalism and another book called A Nuclear Family Vacation with co-author Nathan Hodge that offers something of a tourist's perspective on nuclear sites around the United States and its territories. Before we start the show, let me just thank you all for being such amazing listeners and supporters of this show. I say this often, but I do this for you, and I'm just so thankful that so many of you out there find so much interest and get so much out of this podcast every week. Thank you. And if you have any suggestions of people I should interview, you can just send me an email via the contact page on globaldispatchespodcast.com or just follow the link in the description field of the episode in iTunes. Oh, also, while you're there, check out our new logo. Very excited. All right. Now here is Sharon Weinberger. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Well, let's take us back to the early 1960s, where you have um, the advent of computers. So that is one thing going on. But computers at that point were mainframe computers. They were sort of these exotic creatures that lived in, you know, giant rooms, um, you know, in military installations or in universities. It was not something that you sat in front of in a desk and that you operated. You know, you went into a room, you entered punch cards and, you know, you waited for calculations. Um, but in the late 1950s, early 1960s, there was this system called SAGE, 
which was essentially um, air def- you know, computers that were helping with air defense. So what was going on? One of the big threats to the United States was the potential for um, Russian bombers armed with nuclear weapons to attack the United States. You know, we're only at the very beginning of the advent of intercont- intercontinental ballistic missiles. So the threat is Soviet bombers. Um, so you have these air defense systems, these radars spread out. Um, you know, to detect them as they come to the United States. But trying to track the radar all at once is a big challenge for human operators. How do you keep track of it? You're, you're not, you know, before, you know, you weren't in front of a computer. Well, the SAGE air defense system for the first time had, you know, what we might consider a computer console, meaning that you are looking at a console and you're interacting with it because the computer is helping to calculate where the bombers are. And so you had um, this first generation of scientists of, you know, these weren't quite computer scientists yet. They were usually from other fields who saw that, you know, computers are something you can interact with in the case of Sage with something like a light pen. I mean, this is before the mouse. Um, that they aren't just something that you go into a laboratory or a big room and use. That was one thing that was going on. Um, the other thing that was going on was precisely that, the threat of um, of nuclear weapons. And there was interest in the Pentagon in nuclear command and control. You know, how do you, um, you know, you have nuclear weapons. How do you communicate with other commanders? How do you organize, you know, the nuclear war plan? And computers were one way to do it. So you had these sort of twin things, which is one, the, the development of computers, the very idea that you can interact with them directly and have personal consoles. On the other side, you have the threat of nuclear weapons, both from a Soviet attack and also the need to sort of organize your own nuclear command and control. And these were the twin things that were going on when the Pentagon assigned DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, to look at um, new forms of nuclear command and control. And it, it was DARPA then that created, what was it called, like ARPANET or, or ARPANET, right? Because DARPA ARPANET. used to be called ARPA. Exactly. So this takes us over a few years. So in the early 1960s, DARPA establishes um, a command and control office. And the person who was put in charge of it, J.C.R. Licklider, he actually didn't care so much about nuclear command and control. He saw the opportunity, something transformative to really think about how do we as people interact with machines? Um, What are we going to use them for in the future? And he created the first program at DARPA, then called ARPA, and computer networking. Well, by 1967, 1968, he was already gone, but his work became the basis for ARPANET, which was the first um, actual U.S. computer networking system. Um, So let's go back a little bit. Why did uh, the U.S. government in, I suppose, the late 1950s, early 1960s, create uh, ARPA, what was then called ARPA, which is now called DARPA? So in uh, October of 1957, the Soviet Union launched Sputnik, the world's first satellite, the first um, artificial satellite. And this was, this created eventually, I mean, not sort of in the immediate days, but, you know, sort of in the political crisis that developed in the weeks after, a real sense of of urgency that, you know, for the first time, the, you know, it represented two things. The Soviet Union was ahead in the space race, which was sort of, you know, very much a psychological defeat at the time for the United States. And more fundamentally, that the ability to launch a satellite into space um, was linked to the ability to launch an intercontinental ballistic missile. 
people. So once you can do that, um, and that was a sign that the Soviets could do that soon, you know, this idea of invincibility um, was gone from the United States. So it was a little bit akin to sort of September 11th, 2001. And just as after September 11th, there was the organization of the Department of Homeland Security. In the fall of 1957, there was the idea that we needed to revamp our national security institutions. And one of the things that came out of that by early 1958 was the creation of the Advanced Research Projects Agency. It was authorized by Eisenhower, and it was to be the nation's first space agency. So this is before the creation. So precedes of NASA. NASA. It precedes NASA. So Eisenhower was under a lot of pressure from his science advisors on, on two fronts. So first, there was the idea that we need to consolidate all of the space programs that were behind the Soviets, and something needs to be done. Um, and so that was the genesis of ARPA. Um, but at the same time, his science advisors were pushing hard to have um, space exploration be done as part of a, civil, a civilian institution. They did not want in the long term to have the Pentagon do this. So Eisenhower agreed to um, authorize the creation of ARPA, the nation's first space agency. But in doing so, he specifically said, when I create a civilian agency, I'm going to transfer the civilian space programs out of the military. So it, it, you know, ARPA was the nation's first space agency, but it wasn't meant to sort of be that in perpetuity. So that that's actually some that's that's a good insight into Eisenhower's worldview right there, right? He's famously the person who identified the defense industrial complex, and though he was a general, uh, was uh, stridently, I think, anti-militarization. So that's kind of an interesting nugget, I think. Well, he was anti-militarization, but but more broadly, actually, if you read the full speech, which has been, you know, sort of now um, so memorialized in the way we talk about it, he was also concerned about big scientific projects. I mean, he, he was a skeptic in every sense of the term and really smart about it in a lot of ways that I'm not sure are fully appreciated today in, into the nuances. Yeah, my favorite Eisenhower speech is Adams for Peace. That's a, that's a good one. Delivered yes. that at the UN, creating uh, the uh, IAEA eventually. Yes. <laughs> um, it's funny. I stopped at the Eisenhower Library in Abilene, Kansas on my drive I've cross country. I've always wanted to go. How was it? You know, it, the, the the actual library was closed. I was very disappointed. Oh, I want to see if I can get like an original copy of uh, of the of the the Adams for speech uh, peace speech. But you know, the little gift shop was nice. You know, I like Ike pins and all that. Um, anyway, so so um, through the Cold War, it, it seems that. Um, ARPA slash DARPA was obviously focused on on sort of the Cold War imperative of besting the Soviets, protecting the United States from the Soviet threat. Uh, but in your book, you also identify how uh, the Vietnam War was a key inflection point for uh, DARPA. Can you explain? Yeah, I argue in the book that that you know DARPA today traces its not just its genesis but its entire sort of reason for being and its heritage to the space race. And it really likes to talk about that. We were the nation's first space agency. Um, we got the U.S. into space. And indeed, there's a lot to take credit there for because um, the Saturn rocket that was eventually used on the Apollo mission Apollo mission to the moon was a creation. It was started by DARPA in that in those first days of the agency. They were the first sponsors of it and a big believer in the Saturn rocket. But the truth is, is that, you know, DARPA's role in space was very limited time-wise, about a year and a half in total. So the first thing that happened um, in, in less than a year was the creation of NASA. And so the civilian space programs were moved out of DARPA into this new agency. 
But the other thing that happened that was a big blow for the agency was that its military space programs were also moved out by the end of 1959. So um, these were a number of programs to include um, what became called Corona, which were the CIA's um, uh, and then eventually the NRO's uh, you know, spy satellites. So, you know, by the end of 1959, you have this agency, DARPA, that almost doesn't have a mission. It's lost its civilian satellite programs. It's lost its military space programs. What does it do? Um, And what it did was it pivoted because it happened to have um, in the agency, you know, the first director was so angry about what happened that he left in disgust. And they had um, a man, William Godell, who was an intelligence operative at DARPA, who eventually rose to be the deputy director. And he went to the Pentagon and to the White House and said, look, we have um, the potential for um, rising insurgencies in places like Vietnam. I think DARPA has a role to contribute here. And he traveled across Asia and came back with a proposal to set up basically a jungle warfare center in Vietnam. And this was approved by President Kennedy. And this really started DARPA off in a new direction um, where for the next, you know, over 10 years, it opened offices around the world um, as sort of a global experiment in solving counterinsurgency. And I argue in the book that it was DARPA's experience as a counterinsurgency agency and in Vietnam, which became much more important, not just for the agency itself, but for the technologies it developed. So many of the things that DARPA today touts as its biggest successes, like precision weapons, like stealth aircraft, like drones, all came out of the Vietnam office, not out of DARPA's you know, heritage and history in space, but out of counterinsurgency. Because the idea is to, to conduct an effective counterinsurgency, you don't want to like bomb the entire village. You want to bomb that one house in the village, right? So you can uh, win the hearts and minds of the people without you know, alienating the population. Well, exactly that, but also much more broadly than that, where DARPA really took sort of a systems analysis view, where they realized, you know, that that the roots of insurgency are tied to many things, whether it's the failure of government, of services, of the economy. So how do we address all of these um, things that contribute to insurgency and create sort of a comprehensive counterinsurgency program? So hearts and minds is one part of that. Um, but so is the police, the economic structure, um, the central government um, looking at ethnic and religious tensions in countries. They wanted to sort of address all of these things at once. It was very ambitious and perhaps at the end a bit foolhardy. So can I ask how or in what ways or why is understanding the history of, of DARPA important or useful to sort of understanding U.S. foreign policy today? On a couple levels. So on a sort of a more micro level, in part because they're um DARPA today is touted by Democrats and Republicans alike as this model for problem solving and innovation. And so there has been a big been a big push both in government to create what I call uh, DARPA replications and intelligence ARPA and energy ARPA, homeland security ARPA. And then this is also going on in the private sector where Google at one point had on staff a former DARPA director and was going to create inside Google its own sort of DARPA-like entity. But, but that's actually just one part of it. The, the bigger part that I try to drive home in the book is 
Um, you know, DARPA undoubtedly is the world's most successful military research agency, in many ways, perhaps even the most, the world's most successful research agency. Um, and the way we fight and prosecute our wars today are thanks to DARPA. I mean, if you look at drone warfare, that is directly out of DARPA. Um, the idea of precision weapons, um, of stealth aircraft, um, of, of command and control using computers. We prosecute our wars today based on DARPA technologies. So let's take that a step further. Um, and, and to what I say in the book, that DARPA's legacy is based on the Vietnam War, its technological legacy. So what does that mean? It means the way that we are fighting our wars today is based on our most failed war experience, the, the Vietnam War. Um, and that should tell us something I don't know if profound is the right war, right war, but perhaps troubling. Um, so look at, let's take a look at drones. Um, drones are undoubtedly a successful technology. They are transformative. That they change the way that we wage war. They've ex they by allowing us in part to extend the battlefield um, to places where that we wouldn't send manned aircraft to Pakistan, for example. So it's technologically successful. It's also drawn again from the Vietnam War experience where that was the very first use of drones and then the technologies out of that became the basis for later drone programs sponsored by DARPA. But is that successful, meaning is drone warfare, you know, solving the problems that we need to solve today, I would say based on the fact that we have been at war for 16 years, perhaps not. Um, and so that's the bigger lesson, that the way we're prosecuting our wars is based on our most failed war experience. And we're now approaching perhaps new failed war experiences. Well, that's I mean, that, that that's really interesting. I mean, drones are just like very good at killing people and destroying things. But maybe that's not the way to win the war in Afghanistan, which we have been prosecuting now for much longer than the Vietnam War. They are a tactic, not a strategy, but unfortunately, I think they've been turned into a strategy. And that goes to the other larger lesson of DARPA. And one of the arguments I get into now with sort of current DARPA, um, you know, the the conclusion I draw in my book is that today DARPA is a very successful science and technology agency. They, they fund successful programs, programs that are good, but they're not playing the role that they once played, which is where the title, the Imagineers of War, comes from. That once upon a time, the, the leaders of the agency really thought about, you know, what, what problems are we facing today in the world and how do we solve these problems? Um, so in the late 1950s, the problem was nuclear war. How do we solve that problem? In the early 1960s, it was counterinsurgency. You know, how do we solve these problems? And, and even if they failed, and they often did, not always, but they did, at least they were, as I call one chapter, sort of glorious failures, um, meaning that they were trying to solve an important problem. I don't see DARPA today trying to solve important problems. Yeah, there's no like climate change like uh, branch there, you know, recognizing the security implications of climate change and trying not, to not not know. at DARPA. And you know, once upon a time, DARPA had a very active climate change program back in the 1970s. Um, so the, you know, again, these were problems that DARPA once upon a time really tackled. I don't see them doing those higher level problems now. Um, so I would love to switch gears and, and learn more about you. I, I'm thinking you probably came on my radar. I mean, I, I definitely first started reading you in the Danger Room uh, era, which was a, right. a great blog that you started back in the day. What was it with Wired um, yeah. on on tech and, and security issues? That was that was fantastic. Um, but let's 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 go back a, a little bit. So where are you from? Where are you born? 
uh, born in San Francisco, but raised in Iowa. Okay. What were your parents in like the, the tech stuff or, or in journalism at all? Uh, no, no, no. My, uh, my father is a doctor, a pediatric pulmonologist, and my mother was a social worker. So how did you become sort of interested in these issues and, and involved in, in international affairs and uh, sort of intrigued by, by the technology of, of, of national security? I think I was always interested in national security, um, probably from the days of doing policy debate back in high school, you know, where you sort of travel around as two member teams. And, you know, national security was always, no, no matter what the topic was, even if it was agriculture, I, I think debate always brought things back to sort of, you know, end of the world and nuclear warfare. That's so funny. You know, sorry to interrupt, but like uh, I just conducted an interview with Jim Walsh at MIT, who's a North Korea and nuclear security expert, and he too pointed to to his high school debate club as, as being the most influential oh, and driving force of for almost. a lot of us debate was um, I missed the and, boat. Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> there's still time. Um, yeah, I, I don't know why. I, I do think that um, that policy debate for a lot of us was sort of a formative experience. Maybe it's a mix of the competition and even just the minor travel, but also just sort of elevating the topics that you look at. Um, and, and because it's about problem solving, you know, every year it starts out with, you know, resolved that, you know, whatever the problem is. And, you know, the affirmative team has to come up with some sort of world changing policy solution. Um, so it, it really gets you thinking about bigger problems. So I think from that, I had an interest in national security. I didn't study journalism. I studied international relations in college, you know, which is more or less just an offshoot of political science. I, I actually didn't get into journalism until I think my, my late 20s. How did, you, uh, like, how did you stumble into journalism? Like, what were you doing uh, before that? Um, after graduate school, I, I mean, I, so I did international relations as an undergraduate, and then I did Russian and East European studies as um, as a in graduate school, a master's degree. And after that, I was really struggling with sort of what I wanted to do. I went to work for a couple of years in Eastern Europe, working for non-governmental organizations. You know, this was the 1990s in the era of democratization. And, you know, we're going to help NGOs build these countries' civil society. And I came out of that experience. You know, it sounds great. And I came out of it very disillusioned that it was a lot of spending of money on things that weren't that effective. And I got back to Washington, D.C. And, and decided I wanted to get out of the uh, the NGO world. And I was this is back in the days of Washington Post classifieds. You know, you didn't have monster dot com. And I I applied for a job as a researcher at, at, at an acronym company, SPC. And I had no idea what the company was. It just said I wanted a researcher. And I showed up for the interview and I, I picked up a brochure for the company. And I still remember it said SPC, finding better ways to wage war and protect the peace. And I just about died laughing. I'm like, what the? the? And this was my introduction to the world of defense contractors. I, you know, I kind of, you know, maybe in theory I knew what they were. But I was hired to be an, an analyst and writer um, for a small part of the company that did studies for the Defense Department, for the Office of the Secretary of Defense. And one of the first studies I was put on was to look at the Defense Department's laboratory laboratories, their infrastructure around the country. And I was sent to go you know, around the country to do interviews with laboratory directors and scientists asking because they, they were preparing for cuts um, to the budget. 
And the question was, do we need this Defense Department laboratory infrastructure? Why do we need, in some cases, parallel science projects in the military world? Um, and like What kind of science projects are we talking about? Oh, uh, so Fort Detrick, I got to see an anthrax spore under the microscope. I mean, these are, <laughs> it's, I mean, this is before September 11th, you have to keep in mind. It's like, come see our like high security, bio scary weapons defense project. It was very, I, I, that was, um, I think one of the things that really stuck with me from that visit to Fort Detrick was um, uh, they talked about how they they had enlisted personnel who get assigned there and they're, you know, sweeping and, you know, doing all the things that um, enlisted personnel often do. And they explained to me, well, these personnel get assigned and they're offered, you know, quite, you know, is a very alarming in retrospect. I, 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 I assume they still do this. I don't know. But so, um, you know, these enlisted personnel get assigned to Fort Detrick and they can be volunteers on study projects mm. um, for whether it's vaccinations or anything. But you don't have to. It is informed consent. So if you want to sweep the floors for your one year, two year tour, you can do that or you can be a volunteer in a bio weapons defense facility. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That, that, how in your experience did most of the enlisted people opt in or opt out? Well, you know, keep in mind this. I think I was there. This would have been in 2000. And I, I, I remember asking the question and I think they said that most did volunteer. But again, I'm, I'm remembering from 17 years ago. But I, I think most did opt in, but not all. So there what, were people sweeping the floors. Yeah, so, so what did you do? You, do you find, I guess, uh, surveying these laboratories across the country? Well, what I found was really odd that um, there there is certainly good science that gets done in the Defense Department's laboratories. But from the scientists themselves, a lot of them admitted that what they were doing is sort of second or third tier science. They weren't publishing in the prestige journals. Um, they, they weren't competitive with academia or even with the Department of Energy's nuclear weapons laboratories. Um, and so when you ask them, well, then why are you here? And they said, well, just in case meaning that the Defense Department has long made a decision that we need to have sort of a basic infrastructure in science that resides in the military. And this comes from the Cold War, sort of a, um, you know, we must have a, a military science base. And the questions we were asking in, you know, this is before September 11th was, well, well do we need that? Do we need a, you know, a second class? And not all of it was second class, but a lot of it was a second class science structure. And what I also began to observe, and this sort of launches me into my early reporting career, is that you had, you know, science in the outside world operates by peer review, by publication, by openness, by exchanging ideas. A lot of it in the world of military science is either classified or even if it's not classified, it's closed off. They're not going to academic conferences and exchanging ideas. And so you have the emergence of just sometimes strange science, bizarre science in the sort of an, in sort of an underworld of science. Hmm. The vast majority of the people you meet 
um, in these sort of military science institutions, you know, you can say jokingly they're doing the Lord's work, but no, but these are people who, who believe in protecting their country, who believe in national security. But again, when you get into sort of a closed off world where people, you know, this is sort of the joke about the nuclear war theorists who can make jokes about nuclear Armageddon and, you know, tallying up death like it's a football score. You know, you, you do without contact, um, ready contact with the outside world, get caught in these sort of closed worlds. Um, where things can, from the outside, look a little crazy. Um, so how did you break into journalism? Well, I worked for probably, I think, a little under two years at this defense company um, doing these studies. And I really was, fa- I mean, I, so I, that's how I became fascinated in military science and technology. And I love the research and, and the interviews and the writing. But I, I didn't want to be writing government reports in the long term with a very small audience. I wanted to sort of explain this to the outside world. And so after about a year and a half, maybe not quite two years, there was an opening at Aviation Week, a a defense trade publication for an aerospace and defense reporter. And I thought, that's it. That is my job. That is what I want to do with my life. I mean, at least in that moment, because it was exactly it combined the things that I was really interested in, which is um, Pentagon science and technology, but doing it as a journalist for, you know, a sort of a public and, and rather than a report in news articles. And so I applied for the job and got it. Uh, What sort of articles are you writing back then? So back then, you know, this was, um, you know, the small defense trade publication. It was for Aviation Week's daily newsletter at the time. And so, you know, everything from, you know, UAV, unmanned aerial vehicle programs, drone programs, um, you know, basically the Joint Strike Fighter in its early days, precision weapons. But things changed very rapidly. So I started as a reporter in August of 2001. And was sent, you know, we had a cubicle at the Pentagon. And as you can imagine, you know, six weeks into the job, I'm at my desk on September 11th, 2001, and things change very rapidly for the Pentagon and for journalists covering so the So you were in the Pentagon at the time. Yes, I was in the Pentagon. And that in the time, I believe the press room was in Corridor 7, and the plane hit, I think it was between Corridors 3 and 4. So, you know, we heard it in the press room, but it actually, if we hadn't had TVs on, I'm not sure we would have been immediately. I mean, I think we knew it was something very bad had happened. Um, because so, we were watching what was going on in New York. So you felt like a rumble in the building? You like heard the plane hit the building? Well, we didn't know it was a plane. We heard something. And there were in those days a lot of construction going on in the Pentagon. And I think had it not been for the fact that we were watching what was going on in New York, we might have just assumed, oh, you know, some construction fell. I mean, it wasn't, you know, it was not earth shattering. But in the context of what was going on, and then within a minute there were sirens, you know, you realize that, yeah, this was not a good thing. Have you sort of ever sort of sat back and reflected on how being in that building at that at that moment sort of uh, sort of affected your own life trajectory, your own your own work? Well, certainly. I mean, I don't like to, you know, being in the building was dramatic. But I, I think actually, I, I don't know that it was that more dramatic than be for those people who were simply in New York or in Washington or people who were connected in different ways. Um, you know, what was striking for me was not actually the moment, you know, in the building, but that entire day, which I think affected all of Washington and, and not to mention New York, of course, um, but how quickly it changed our our perception 
of national security, our perception of the world. I mean, if you take us back to the early day where, you know, we, we got out of the Pentagon and, and there were rumors, quite reliable rumors, that there were dozens of, hijack, of hijacked aircraft in the air still. And I remember we, you know, for the reporters in the Pentagon that we set up sort of, you know, there was a base camp at the Sitco station across from the Pentagon and seeing this view, you were looking directly at the collapsed part of the Pentagon was out of a, um, you know, sort of like out of some sort of Hollywood horror movie, but then more just how it changed the city that day. We were brought back into the Pentagon later that night by mm -hmm. Rumsfeld. I don't remember, maybe at like, you know, nine or 9 p.m., maybe a little bit earlier, maybe later. I don't quite remember. Um, but we drove the long way around through Roslyn and there were basically, you know, sort of armed um, military personnel at different, you know, sort of parts going from Roslyn to the Pentagon. And that was striking for me. And that's been striking ever since, which is sort of the um, I hate to use the word militarization. I think that's been overused. But the fact that we have been at war now for 16 years and you have a, you know people in their 20s. Um, and even into their early 30s, you have, you have a generation that has grown up thinking that it's normal to always be at war. And I, I think that, to me, is more troubling. And that's what I trace back to September 11th more than anything else, and, and more than my personal experience. But that experience of a generation of being at war. Was there an early indication to you, having you know studied sort of the technological or aspect of, of national security and and foreign policy, that um, certain perhaps technological changes were on the way to um, support this kind of perpetual war that you describe? Yeah, it's actually fun. It's a good question, you know, because in 2001, Aviation Week was writing about drones, unmanned aerial vehicles every day. And it was considered like this wonky tech subject that only the trades, you know, meaning places like Aviation Week or Defense Daily or Defense Week or Jane's Defense Weekly wrote about, you know, you, you know, the New York Times and Washington Post in, um, in those days, we're not really writing a lot of articles. I mean, it's like, yeah, when there were the first drone strikes, it would pop up. But it was this wonky subject. Um, and when again, when you look at how drone warfare has now become such a part of our popular culture and our military culture and our even our everyday vernacular, you know, drones, which were just this really weird subject that only, yeah, only the trades were writing about. Um, so I do want to talk uh, about your book, Nuclear Family Vacation, which I am like totally intrigued by, uh, which I, I didn't read at the time, but I'm going to go back and read now. It looks it looks fantastic. <laughs> but but what? So it came out in 2008. Like what inspired that book? Um, what inspired it was the idea of of a nuclear road trip um, that we wanted to visit. Um, you know, the, the, you have a lot of sites in the United States. I mean, because, you know, I have this interest in national security. And so when you travel, of course, like the idea that you can outside of Las Vegas, and I have family in Las Vegas, so I go there quite frequently that, you know, less than an hour outside, you can do a bus tour, you know, tourists can, of, um, of the Nevada test site, which is where we for years conducted nuclear weapons tests. And even today, um, we conduct what are called subcritical tests, and then the site is still used by the military and Department of Homeland Security for many other military drills and simulations 
and whatnot. But for you can go there and you can visit, see the craters, and you can see the the burned out bank vault where you know they're trying to see you know what was going to survive a nuclear weapons blast, and you know you can make these trips through the site, um, or that you can go to um, the Trinity site in New Mexico where the first nuclear um, device was detonated, or that you can do public tours of the Los Alamos Nuclear Weapons Laboratory. And, and this is true around the world, or even the, the best, you know, my favorite was um, uh, the Greenbrier Resort um, in West, in West Virginia. Virginia. Yeah, big, big oh, golf, yeah. a golf destination. Yeah, it's a big golf destination. And for years, was the very, very top secret alternate site that Congress was going to go to in case of nuclear war. Really? That's yeah, it, it, so they today, so it was exposed in the early 1990s, I believe, by Ted Gupp at the Washington Post, um, and that's what I mean. Once it was exposed, it was closed down. But that you had this luxury resort that, in secret, had a bunker for Congress, and that was going to be the heart of government after nuclear war. It's it's insane. And so today they do the hotel does public tours of the bunker. I mean, it's 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 crazy. It's and and amazing. Uh, and and I mean, what was um, or I, I should say that so your your, your stories of that kind of remind me of like a trip I took with my family like two weeks ago to the Rocky Mountain Arsenal, which is this like pasture land right outside Denver where like buffalo roam and and coyotes try to catch uh, little you know prairie dogs that are hiding in in the, in the bush. But you know, in the 1940s, it was an artillery site, and there are those I think all around the country. Well, exactly. I mean, what do Americans, I mean, not just Americans, but you know, certainly Americans, we, we love to visit, you know, battlegrounds, whether it's the Civil War or, you know, historic sites. Um, and in what's fascinating about a nuclear weapons tour is that these are both historic sites, but they're still used. Um, and I, I love that idea of it, that you can visit sort of active battle sites of the Cold War that are still in use. Um, and, and that, for me, was really fascinating. Uh, well, what did it tell you about like the culture that, that we've built up around um, nuclear weapons? That we've normalized it. Um, you know, that's what's amazing. You know, even at, at the Greenbrier, you know, when you talk to these people, like, how did you not know a major Cold War facility was underneath your feet? And, um, you know, I think one guy said to us who worked there, because because it was at a certain point it became sort of an open secret, meaning there there were it's, it's very hard to hide a bunker <laughs> um, in this day and age. And one guy compared it to sort of like you know like the alcoholic in the family that you 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 just don't talk about it, um, and it just becomes normal. Um, and more importantly, you know when you go to the nuclear weapons laboratories, and I have a cousin who works at Los Alamos, and you know, you go to work and you enjoy your work and you laugh about it and you're creating weapons that can end the world. Um, and so you have to normalize it because you have to go to work every day. Um, and that's, that's, what's interesting for me. Um, so looking to, to the future, are there any technological developments that are underway now or on the horizon, uh, that suggests something to you about sort of culturally how we as a society, uh, will approach warfare or are approaching, uh, warfare. 
That's a good one. You know, a lot of what you're seeing now is a course on artificial intelligence. And, and I, there's a part of me um, that believes that is so hyped, so, so very hyped. You know, every day we're seeing new articles, you know, Terminator going to end the world. And, you know, the, the push for artificial intelligence has been, you know, as you know, for a number of decades. And it's not clear to me that we're on the verge of any huge breakthrough that the hype is talking, there's huge breakthroughs in artificial intelligence for things like big data, um, but not for machines that are going to end the world, in my view. Um, you know, in a way, this has been a recurring theme of what I talk about, that, you know, we, we look to sort of technology both to solve our problems and also as this tremendous threat. But I think wars have proven again and again the biggest problem is the human problem. You know, insurgency is not a technological problem. You know, nuclear weapons are a, a technological issue, but in the end, it's a warfare is a human problem. Um, and so, yes, I, I, I do think it's interesting to look at what are the big technologies of the future that could be a threat, like, you know, potentially artificial intelligence or, you know, um, synthetic biology, um, biological threats are, are something that you hear a lot of from the intelligence community. Um, and, I, and I think those are all well and good to look at and be concerned about. But again, I think it's the human problem that Trump saw. Well, and, and it's one of like that adage, you can't bomb climate change or you can't bomb like anti-biotic resistance oh, people have malaria. talked about bombing. Uh, there was, you don't see much about it the past few years, but uh, there were a lot of nuclear weapons scientists who were talking about geoengineering <laughs> to solve climate change. That seems to have fallen out of favor. Wait, the past wait, wait, explain, wait, wait, I don't, I, you, so you actually can bomb climate change. Uh, there were proposals from the Lawrence Livermore Nuclear Weapons Laboratory. Um, if you Google a scientist, uh, I think it was Lowell Wood, who was very instrumental in the Ronald Reagan Star Wars program. He was on sort of the, I guess I would call it the campaign trail about a decade ago. Because, you know, there was all this work on, under um, uh, in nuclear war about nuclear winter, that the idea that nuclear weapons would, um, you know, basically freeze the earth to death by, uh, and so this became proposals for geoengineering um, to solve global climate change. Again, I, I have not followed this, but I haven't seen a lot of it in the past few years. So I think it has fallen out of favor. I mean, that, that just also kind of speaks to like this, this larger question that kind of hangs over, uh, I think, a lot of your work, which is, you know, we as, as a, a country invest so much in defense and and uh you wonder if some of that those investments were were put towards you know civilian solutions to these problems uh if the the sort of the end result might be might be much different if some of the technologies that have been developed uh if they were developed in a civilian setting as opposed to a military setting might just be sort of fundamentally different and and uh, approach some of these issues and problems in a different way it would be very different, but let me play devil's advocate here for a second. I, I certainly do. I mean, you can probably get the sense of what I talk about, that I have a lot of concerns about militarization. But I, one of the things I really emphasize is, is that people need to not make it simplistic, that civilian science is good and military science is bad. Um, ARPANET, I mean, computer networking would have developed eventually 
somewhere. But the pace of developments and that it developed in the United States is because of the military interest in it, both because of its concerns about nuclear command and control and about the funding it put into it. I think everyone can say that, you know, the Internet, which came directly out of ARPANET, is a pretty amazing development. So a lot of military science can lead to good things. So um, satellite navigation and GPS came out of, of course, military systems that were going to be used for weapons, that are used for weapons. Um, You know, driverless cars that we're seeing sort of come into their own um, beginning right now came out of DARPA's work in the mid 2000s and then decades of prior research. Um, You know, so many of our civilian things, whether it is, um, you know, even take a small thing, the Siri app from the iPhone came directly out of a DARPA project. Um, So, you know, There was often a debate in the Cold War of whether funding should be tied to national security institutions or civil institutions. Europe went in a different direction, the United States in many ways. Our military science has been very successful at creating technologies. Um, But is that what you want? Um, There will be the military likes to solve problems, and that's very good for techno- technological development. It's not as good for science. I think um, the military has proved again and again that it's not as good with um, basic science, perhaps, as civil institutions are. Um, you know, it's what you're seeing now is a debate under the Trump administration where there's proposals to cut um, you know, civil civilian science institutions like the National Institutes of Health and climate research funding, and there are proposals to increase the Defense Department budget, which will probably increase military science funding. That's traditionally been the case. DARPA will probably benefit. Um, and so what I challenge people to say is, is rather than making it simplistic about is that good, is that bad, what does it mean? What does it mean when you have military institutions being the major benefactor funder of science and technology? And it's when you look at that question, then you can start to say whether that's good or bad. Uh, well, Sharon, thank you so much for your time, for your books. Everyone should go buy your books, uh, and there'll be links to them on Global Dispatches. Or borrow them from the library. <laughs> or borrow them. No, buy two copies. <laughs> Um, Makes nice, uh, you know, stocking stuff or presents. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate it. This is this is great. Thank you. I enjoyed it. All right. Thank you to Sharon. Thank you all for listening. That was fun. That was interesting. A little outside of my wheelhouse, but I love going there. Before I let you go, I should plug my Dawn's Digest Global News Clips service, which is a hand-curated, hand-picked by me and my partner summary of the most important global news of the day. This is news that is often not on the headlines of the Washington Post or New York Times, a little behind the headlines, but nonetheless really important global news that you won't want to miss if you are a global news junkie. We have lots of subscribers in the NGO community and some government agencies around the UN, and it can be yours comped as part of a premium podcast membership. You also get bonus episodes and other goodies, uh, but the Don's Digest is is yours for free if you become a premium subscriber at the $10 a month level. You will also be supporting me and supporting the show, and thank you. I, I need your help, and, and I just profoundly thank you for helping the show. All right. See you next time. Bye.